So let me just begin this morning's message with a caveat, maybe a preface, if you will. I am the least qualified person to preach on today's topic. Okay, so if you've already looked at Matthew 5, verse 21, the, the subtitle there deals with anger. So again, I am the least qualified person to talk about this. Uh, so let me just end it right there. But in thinking through this this week, I was, I was reminded of something from my childhood. And um, so you guys, y'all can just disregard this next like two seconds, okay? How many of you remember the TV show, The Incredible Hulk? Not the Marvel movie, you remember it? Okay, 1978 to 1982. I looked that up this morning and go, wow, that, I'm old, <laughs> all right? But if you don't know the story, it was great because Lou Ferrigno was the Hulk. I mean, this dude was massive, right? And it just kind of chronicles the, the, the life of Dr. David Banner that had like a really bad scientific accident. And any time that he got stressed or angry, he would metamorphosize into the Hulk, Right, and you could just you remember if you remember the TV show, just really bad like '70s cinematography of muscles burgeoning, you know, busting out of his shirt and all this kind of stuff. And and it, his signature thing was, "Don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry." Here's the thing: nobody likes you when you're angry. <laughs> Nobody likes me when, when I'm angry uh, because when I'm angry, we've kind of lost control of things. There's this thing we have called our temper, uh, and, and our temper is really just kind of uh, moving or staying within a particular state of mind or state of being. And so when we lose our temper, now we have moved beyond this state of being. And so let me just again reiterate, I am the least qualified person to preach this message today because I'm not very good at this. When we lose our temper, we move beyond this state of mind. So just follow this logic with me. When you lose your temper... Does it mean that you lose your mind? Temporarily, yes. So what do we do in order to move that back into a healthy or a helpful state? And, and so for us as disciples, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Uh, because honestly, when we lose our temper, we have wrestled control of our emotions away from the Lord, and we have taken control. And so now we are trying to control something we were never able, uh, have been able to, or even created to handle. It's like putting the keys of a Lamborghini Murcielago in the hands of a 16-year-old. Okay, it's way more power than they could ever be able to handle. And so the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that every one of us struggles with anger at some point. Okay? Some of us, we wrestle with it almost on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. It just seems to simmer beneath the surface. For others of us, we have a really long fuse. You know those kind of people? It is a really long fuse. just seem to be really calm, and, 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 but all of a sudden they explode. Right? We all deal with anger. So the question is, how do we deal with that as disciples of Jesus? And so we've, you've been wondering, when are we going to get into the valley? When are we going to get into the hard things? Guess what, friends? We're there. As we wrestle with this thing called anger and really allowing God to transform our temperament. And, and really how we deal with difficult situations, but even more specifically, how do we deal with difficult people? 
And so this morning, we address what we're supposed to do with our anger and how we respond to the anger of others. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we live in a very angry society. We are angry about everything. No longer can we have a civil discussion or disagreement. We must be angry. Just If you don't believe me, just turn on you know, kind of national news. We don't even talk anymore. We just yell at each other. Okay? We're angry, and we don't even know what we're angry about. So as disciples, we need to learn how we can, how we can handle and how we can deal with those kind of emotions. And so Jesus shed some light on that for us in Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 21, let me invite you to stand this morning as you're able in honor of the reading of God's word together. And this is what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny." So Jesus sheds some light on uh, the subject for us in anger, and then he illustrates it in two different ways for us, puts it in very practical terms for us to understand. Let's pray together this morning. God, you are, are so faithful, and I, and I thank you for your love and your grace to us. And God, I thank you that, that through your grace, you withhold your anger and your wrath from us. Uh, Lord, sometimes I think we, we overlook that. Uh, but Lord, you are gracious and you are merciful. And, and Lord, as your disciples, you have called us to extend that same grace and mercy to those who are around us. And so, uh, Lord, aside from a holy or a righteous anger, uh, anger has no place in the life of your disciples. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you help us, one, understand um, how destructive anger is in our discipleship and in our worship. But God, I also pray that you begin to show us the importance of reconciliation. Because God, you point to us this morning that it's hard for us to worship you when, when we have a string of broken relationships in our path. And so Father, this morning, very, very pointedly, you, you talk to us about the importance uh, of reconciliation and, and how that is the thing that overcomes our anger. So Lord, teach us this morning from the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, uh, the words of Solomon, or how we are to handle this thing called anger, this loss of, of temper and this misuse of our emotion. Uh, God, so that we can create healthy and helpful environments, Lord, to manifest harmony and grace and peace and love in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves now before you uh, before the teaching of your word and your Holy Spirit, and, and we ask you to teach us and instruct us, Lord. And then, God, we, we ask that you give us the courage and the strength uh, and the, the ability to go forth and do something with what we learned today. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so if we're, going to, if we're going to talk about transforming our temper, I think before we even get to that, 
we need to understand its source. We need to understand where uh, our, our temper or our temperament comes from and the thing that impacts or affects it. And so Jesus just begins to reframe our understanding. You'll remember that last week we talked about how Jesus came and he says, uh, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it or, or bring it to completion. And, and so in that, he is addressing that some of the teachers of the law had not been teaching the fullness of the law. They were only teaching part of it, but they were missing out on some of the original intent. And so from, from this morning through the rest of this series, we're going to be unpacking or addressing these things, this, this particular phrase that Jesus uses. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And so Jesus just helps us to reframe our understanding. He's bringing us back into line with the original intent of God's law. So he's not making new laws here. He's not rewriting the scriptures. Essentially what he's doing is he is shedding new light on God's intent behind his word. And, and in doing so, it allows us to, to be more faithful to that word and to be fully obedient to that word. And so this morning he's dealing specifically with Exodus 20, verse 13. It says, you shall not murder. Right? So we, we look at that, and, 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 and that's a whole other sermon for another. How do we define murder? I mean, there's lots of ways. You know, is it you shall not kill anything? Is it you shall not murder? And so this morning we're just talking about the death of a human that is senseless uh, and, and, and the cause of negligence or just basic foolishness. And so we sit there and go, man, I would never do that. That's something I would never do, nor would I ever consider that. In fact, when you, we begin to talk about the sinfulness of people on an individual basis, their initial reaction is, well, hey, I've never murdered anybody. Right? We see that as something is just absolutely horrible. But, but, but what Jesus does is he reveals to us the root of that action. Like, how do we end up at, at murder? Well, it's a progression. And, and essentially what happens is he says, hey, the, the root of murder is anger. That when we lose control of our temper, we become enraged with someone, that's just as bad. So in that step, here's what Jesus does. He takes murder and he puts it on the same plane as anger. Now, I could say, how many of you have murdered someone? Hopefully nobody raises their hand. <laughs> but I could say, how many of you have been angry with someone and every one of us? would more than likely raise our hand. When you say, well, how do, we, how do we know that Jesus put them on the same plane? Because the result of each of those is the same. He says, to whoever murders, he is liable to judgment. And whoever is angry with his brother, same result, is liable to judgment. So then Jesus takes this idea and he just begins to expound upon it. He talks about ways that we express anger. And so it, this, this just moves beyond being angry with someone, right? Because here's the thing. You can be angry with someone, and they never even know it. And guess who suffers? You do. They have no idea. They have no idea how angry or mad or frustrated or annoyed uh, you are with them. You are the one who suffers more than they do. But there comes a point where that anger and that frustration and that annoyance gives, gives birth to an expression. And so Jesus now addresses what happens when we make our anger known, when we say something out of anger. And when we say things out of anger, we, say, we, we use words that hurt. We, we weaponize our language. 
We purposefully say something that will inflict pain upon you. Maybe not physically, but most assuredly emotionally. And so Jesus says there's two instances. He says anyone who insults his brother will be liable or will be liable to the council. Then he says, whoever says you fool. So the word used for insult, some of your translations may say, whoever says raka unto his brother. It's just, a, it's just a, a, an insult. You just call someone foolish. You, know, you do foolish things. You're a fool. But the one who, who calls a brother a fool, actually the word for fool there is the word more. It's the word that we use for moron. Now you're not just talking about the things that they do. Now you're talking about who they are. You're stupid, you're foolish, you're an idiot, you're a moron. Go on, so on, and so forth. We've weaponized these words to express our anger because we want that person to feel the way that we feel. Here's what we fail to realize. There are consequences to our actions. There are ramifications in the things that we do. And so the reality is that we are responsible for what we do. We quickly want to blame someone else, right? The reason I feel this way is because of you or you or you, but we're the ones who say the words. We must take responsibility for these expressions of our anger. And so what Jesus does, he says, basically, you're liable for the things that you do. That word liable simply means this, that we we are deserving of judgment, and so then that idea of, of judgment simply is, is this, that, that there will be a case. We, we'll think about it in terms of a trial. We will, be, we will be held before a group of people to evaluate the level of the punishment that we deserve. And so where there is judgment, there will be punishment. It's just the result of our actions. And so then Jesus takes that one step further and he says, listen, when you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the council. He's talking specifically about the Sanhedrin or those who will deal with the matters of men. And then he says that if you uh, call your brother a fool, a moron, an idiot, then you will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow, that escalated quickly, didn't it? But here's the thing, Jesus is showing us that, that there, will be, uh, there will be this, this judgment or this accountability on two levels. One of those is before our own peers, right? So you commit a crime, then you go on trial, and a group of 12 of your peers of men and women will decide your fate. So when we violate the laws of men, there are certain consequences under the laws of men. But also when we violate the laws of God, there are, there are consequences of the laws of God. And, and, and Jesus just simply says this, that you will be liable to the hell of fire, The word for hell there is the word Gehenna. There was an actual place called Gehenna. Gehenna is actually found in the Valley of Hinnom. It's south and west of Jerusalem, and it was the dump. It was the city dump. It was a place of perpetual fire. This is where you went to dump your garbage and your refuse and all that stuff, and you did not want to go there. And so when Jesus says, uh, talks about the hell of fire or Gehenna, it put a picture in the mind of his listeners of a place that they did not want to go. And in their mind, they understood Gehenna, or the hell of fire, to be a place um, that, that the ungodly would be punished. You see, there are ramifications for what we do, and in both of these cases, whether in the laws of man or the laws of God, there are far-reaching consequences. And so, what happens is, is that our, our temper gets the best of us. 
and it takes action. And the reason it takes action is because our temper is controlled by our emotion. Our temper is controlled by our emotion. We lose our temper when we lose the control of our emotions. That's a, that's a game changer for us. Because while we would probably never murder someone, we very quickly allow ourselves to be angry with them and allow that anger to perpetuate in our life. Sometimes that anger is justifiable. Most of the time it is not. And when, when anger goes unchecked in our life, it puts us in a very bad place. I love what Paul has to say about this. Because here was a man who knew what it, what, what it meant to be angry, and he also knew what it meant to be the object of someone else's anger. In Ephesians 4, verses, verse 31, he says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. So none of these things are helpful or none of these things are healthy. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, or malice. He says, put those things away from you. Verse 32, it implies instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the, the very thing that is causing our anger or our bitterness or our wrath, we've got to push that away and allow the Holy Spirit instead to come in and direct and guide us so that we can be kind and tenderhearted and compassionate and forgiving. So if we're going to transform our temperament, we must understand where it comes from. It comes from our anger or the loss of our temper due to our emotion. And what we see is that once our temper is transformed, it, it, it seeks reconciliation. Look at verse 23. Jesus just gives us this illustration. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and while you are there, remember that your brother has something against you. That means you have wronged someone else and you remember in that moment that you have wronged someone else. Jesus just clearly says, leave your gift behind and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so our, our transformed temper, it seeks reconciliation in our relationships with people. So once we have our relationship with God reconciled by, by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, now we need to begin working on reconciliation in our broken relationships. And here's why. Because it is difficult for us to enter into the presence of God when we really struggle being in the presence of others, especially those with whom we are angry. And we can be angry with people for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because of a wrong that we've committed. That's what Jesus points out here. But in other cases, it's because of a wrong that is committed against us. But regardless of the reason, what Jesus points out here is that our anger hinders, or maybe better, our anger disrupts our worship. And so consider this question with me this morning. How can we praise God with whom we have been reconciled if there is still unreconciled relationships with others in our life? How can we do that? And I know that's pretty general. So let, let's kind of narrow that down a little bit, these unreconciled relationships. And, and, and we understand this, man. Uh, sometimes that's brother against brother. I mean, sibling against sibling. 
Sometimes it's with our parents. Sometimes it's, it's with our, our coworkers, right? Because you feel that you deserve that promotion instead of Karen. Maybe it's because Karen continues to eat your leftover, you know, food in the workroom refrigerator that you clearly marked, right? How dare her do that? Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe we need to reconcile a relationship with our neighbor because they have this sweet little chihuahua that does nothing but yip at two o'clock in the morning. You see? Maybe it's with somebody in our class, you know, the one who sits on the front row who breaks every curve. If you're not laughing, it's you. See, we have all of these relationships in our life that are, that are broken and we harbor ill will and anger toward them, but yet we will still come here and try to raise glory and praise unto God. Listen, the presence of God awakens us to our need for reconciliation. And it awakens us first of our need of reconciliation with God. Listen, your sin, my sin, it breaks this relationship we have with God. He reconciled that or brought that into harmony through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you will place your faith in Jesus and commit to follow him as a disciple for the rest of your life, that relationship between you and God is restored. But that's not where it ends. Because God restores our relationship with him so that then we can have our relationships with people restored as well so that we can point them to Jesus. That word reconcile, you know what it really means, and I love this definition? It means to bring into harmony. To bring into harmony. To bring it into peace. So what happens is, so often is we just hold on to our unforgiveness. And the unforgiveness that we hold in our hearts, it has an effect. It taints our worship. In James chapter 3, James talks about the dangers of the tongue. How it's powerful. How, I mean, it can, it can light things on fire. And he says this in verse 9. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Think about that. Is that you? Did you come into a place like this and we will praise God and we will sing uh, worship to him. But then we will go out and we will curse those who are made in his likeness. He continues in verse 10, James does, and says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be. And so, is that you? Do you come into this place and worship God with your mouth, but knowing that you're going to leave this place and you're going to get behind the slow poke on Texas Avenue or the crazy driver on Highway 6, and you're going to curse them, or maybe you'll just say, bless you in Jesus' name. But out of the same mouth cannot come praise and cursing. And so here's what Jesus does. He moves us from words to actions. He says, if you are offering your gift and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and finish your gift. He moves us toward positive action. See, a lot of us have positive intent. But positive intent, in order to be effective, must be followed up with positive action. He says, go and be reconciled. Seek reconciliation. Seek peace. Seek harmony. And, 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 and he goes so far as to say, before you offer that gift first, of greater priority than offering your gift is to fix the broken relationship that loss of temper and anger and uncontrolled emotion caused. 
He said, first, go and make peace with your brother so that then you can come and offer your gift in peace to the Lord. And so when we, when we look at that, reconciliation is this beautiful picture of grace and mercy. It's the, it's the very thing that God does for us. God does not hold his anger over us as a threat. Instead, he holds his grace over us, forgiving all of the past wrongs that we have done. Proverbs 21.3 says this, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That, that picture of righteousness and justice, those are pieces of reconciliation. Okay? That, that we will not seek reconciliation or right relationships apart from righteousness. And we will not have righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. See, when we come under the authority of Jesus in our life, he makes us righteous and he makes all things new and he puts things back in right order. And so we, we are to, to go and be instruments of righteousness and justice because God is, desires that more than sacrifice. So here's a question we've got to consider this morning. How can we say that we are united unto God and still have disunity in our relationships. Paul addresses it this way in Romans 12. He says, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. There are two things at work in that verse. As, as far as it depends on you. So it just means this, reconciliation takes work. As it depends on you in all that you can do, live peaceably with all, live at peace with others. It, it, it takes work. Jesus kind of uh, gives us this idea when he says, leave your gift and go. Now understand that when you were bringing your gift, you were traveling from wherever you were to Jerusalem to the temple. And not, every, not all the Jewish people lived in Jerusalem. Okay? Some of them traveled, you know, days to get there. And so can you imagine what it, what it would be like when Jesus says, don't offer your gift, just leave it there. Tell the priest, hey, I've got to go take care of something. You would travel days back to where you came from to be reconciled to your brother, only then to be able to turn around and come back and finish your offering. And, and so here, here's the thing. We struggle with reconciliation because it's an interruption to our life. We have brought our gift, I'm ready to offer it, and now, Jesus, you say that I've got to go and be reconciled. That's an interruption of what I want to do, but it calls me to do what I need to do. Reconciliation is hard work, and that's probably the reason, number one reason why most of us don't do it. It's too hard. It's an interruption. It's inconvenient. One other word on reconciliation, real quick, is that we cannot be reconciled one to another apart from love. We cannot be reconciled one to another apart from love. Jesus uses the word brother here, and that, you can interpret that a lot of different ways. It could be brother, like sibling. It could be fellow believer, brother in Christ. It could be a really, really close friend. However you render that, though, this is talking about someone that you love, someone that you are in relationship with. And so we find that reconciliation pours out of our life because of our love for people, and that love for people is steeped in God's love for us and God's love for that person. And so when we talk about reconciliation, it's not just about getting both parties in the room and say, okay, you say you're sorry. 
Okay, and you say you're sorry, now hug. Right? Maybe that's what it looked like in your home. Right? And it's really forced. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. That's, that's not reconciliation. That's appeasing mom or dad. This is actual, genuine forgiveness that is given. It's, but, but it's more than that. It's not just seeking forgiveness, and it's not just giving forgiveness. It's receiving forgiveness. And maybe part of that forgiveness that needs to be received is you forgiving yourself. Man, it's so easy sometimes to forgive people, but it's really hard to forgive me. And part of that work of reconciliation is ceasing being angry with me and the mistakes that I have made and seeing myself with the eyes of grace that God sees me with. Jesus gives one more illustration. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest the accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and they put you in prison. Because Jesus says, truly, I'll tell you, you will not be let go. You will not be set free until you have repaid every penny. And what we see is kind of the after effect of a transformed temper. It's simply this, that a transformed temper is agreeable. It's agreeable. To be agreeable means that we must be in agreement. That's why Jesus says, come to terms. That we've, we've reasoned together and we've come to an agreement, something that is favorable. And so reconciliation is agreeable or it is favorable for all of the parties who are involved. And so it's the result of agreeing on two parts. One, that both parties have agreed to their role of responsibility in the wrong. And it's also that both parties have agreed in their role and responsibility in the healing or in the forgiveness or in the moving forward. And so this extending, or, or this extending and receiving of forgiveness is so important. It's crucial because we have a tendency sometimes to withhold it. We forgive somebody in mind, but we won't forgive them in our heart. I'm going to remember what you did. I'm so thankful that God doesn't do that to us. Psalms tells us that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Oh, that we could do that with one another. That the same grace that we experience through Jesus Christ, we would be able to extend to one another. And so understand this. If there's going to be an agreement that comes to bear, there has to be honesty. We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest with one another. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Because the mark of maturity for a disciple is being able to agree without becoming angry. We wonder why societally and culturally we see such disagreement and disunity is because we don't want to move beyond our anger. I want, to, I, want to, I want what I want and I'm going to be angry about it until I get it. The key to being agreeable in the picture that Jesus has painted for us is, is that we are looking for a friendly or an amicable or a peaceful decision. Listen. If we as believers, and as, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, if all we are is angry all the time about everything and always in, in outrage, we are doing the gospel absolutely no good. We do the gospel no good when we are dis, disgruntled and disruptive and destructive and disagreeable. Because honestly, if we were just honest with one another this morning, we would rather aggravate a situation than come to an agreement upon it. I'd rather just continue to poke the bear, so to speak. But friends, that's not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of Jesus. Understand something else about being agreeable. We are not looking for compromise. We are not looking for compromise. Compromises are lose-lose situations. 
And that means that, that both parties involved gave up something in order to reach an agreement. No, we're looking for consensus. We are looking to come to the table and actually create a new solution that creates a win-win for those who are involved. You see, here's really what happens. A transformed temper gives up its right to be angry in order to be agreeable. And here's what that means. When we are agreeable, here's what happens in us. We see the value in the person over my opinion. We see that that person matters more in the scope of eternity than me getting what I want. You see why being agreeable is a mark of maturity? We have a lot of immature people around us because we only care about getting what we want and we could care less about other people. That is not the way of Jesus. And here's how we know that. We walked through the Beatitudes this past fall. So I'm going to point you to a couple of those. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. It's hard to be humble and angry at the same time. Anger is really a result of pride. I want what I want. Humility, on the other hand, values the other person more. Blessed are the meek. Not not those who are confident and arrogant in themselves, but who have complete confidence in Jesus Christ and knowing that he will accomplish his will. Blessed are the peacemakers. Rarely have I known someone to ever make peace while being angry. Ever. And so what we see is that as we become who Jesus has called us and created us to be, as we have these marks of a disciple in us that have been laid out for us in the Beatitudes, we see that anger has nothing to do with any of those things. Instead, Jesus has called us to be helpful and to be healthy in our relationships. And so as you are humble and as you are a peacemaker and as you are meek, we find restoration for our relationships. We give up our right to be angry about those things and we allow grace to abound in our lives. And so I would just ask you this morning, as we talk about this, obviously there are some things that probably came to mind, maybe even specific people. And as I've prayed for you this week, like I said, I am the least qualified to preach this message. But what is that relationship maybe that God is putting his finger on this morning and saying, this is the one, this is the one that you continue to harbor ill will towards. And listen, honestly, friends, maybe the person that we are most angry with is ourself. Maybe the person that we are most angry with is God, because he didn't give us what we wanted when we wanted it. This morning, I just pray for you that you would allow God to begin to do um, this work of reconciliation in your life, first to him. We can never fix relationships with other people until our relationship with our Heavenly Father is repaired and restored. So maybe that just means for you this morning, you just call out to God and say, God, forgive me. I want a new start with you. Maybe you need to leave right now and and go to that person that that you have bitterness or anger or wrath or envy against and begin that process of forgiveness and reconciliation.